Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements and this is the podcast that celebrates films for the 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we are joined by director Mark Jobst, a legend in cinematic television. Credits include Daredevil, Hannibal, The Witcher, and many, many more. But most recently, Netflix's highly acclaimed live action adaptation of One Piece. Welcome, Mark. Hey, thank you, Sam. Lovely to be here. We we talk to lots of uh, lots of directors, but often people maybe who work in cinema and and just because of how long films take for cinema, you know, their credits are maybe you know two or three feature films. But you're <laughs> looking at your IMDb page. You know, it's uh, it's a uh, it's a who's who of must watch television. Well, thank you. Yeah, and and the thing about high end television these days is that it, it is it's reaching itself. You know, well into the whole cinema theatre type of um, filmmaking, uh, but on a television schedule. So in in many respects, it it is one of the hardest forms of filmmaking to do. You know, you really have to compete now with, you know, the quality of those extraordinary cinema films that we see and that we like to go and see on the small screen, but on those, you know, tight schedules. I mean, interestingly enough, One Piece, which is the show I've just done, we shot episode one and two, and we had a 70-day shoot for that. In television terms, is a feature film kind of shoot. Basically, you, you know, two hours of two hours of television drama is, is the equivalent length, let's say, of a feature film. Normally, so for example, on the Marvel shows that we used to shoot in New York, I would be given maybe nine days prep and 10 days shoot, possibly with a couple of second unit days to shoot you know, extraordinarily complicated episodes that involved huge amounts of action and action prep. So you learn you learn how to achieve a huge amount in a small amount, small amount of time. And I, I was wondering when you're on a, a series and you're a director for the first couple of episodes, are you, I, I, that just sounds like it must be more work because you're involved in tone setting, casting, like is, is, is that true? Or, you know, is, it sounds like it's quite a lot of responsibility to sort of be the first director in. On One Piece, you know, you really have the opportunity as the lead director, who is essentially the, 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 the person who's bringing in the visual creativity to the show. You know, you have wonderful scripts written by Matt Owens and Steve Maeda, and you have the of the fantastic source material material from Odasan and you know and Shueisha and all that, that's there. But how do you realize this? What do you put in your frame? You know, day one, you've got a camera, what are you going to show? And how are you going to choose what you show? And uh, what sort of lenses are you going to use? What sort of light? What sort of color tones? You know, what kind of camera movement are you going to do? Um, what do your sets look like? You know, how do you dress these people? How do you make a differentiation between the different lands that these people go to? All that is is the director's role. I'm not alone. Of course not. You kind of bring a brilliant team of people with you, but you have to have a vision as the lead director. And that's the exciting bit of it, you know, realizing the vision. We did a very deep dive on one piece. 
you know the the it's because in many ways it's just a travel show you know there's no precinct uh you never go back to one precinct i mean maybe they're going mary is a bit of a precinct the boat but but that's just taking you to another land so you're constantly having to design and think about how these different lands look and feel so that when they land on them uh with their boat you feel as an audience that they've gone somewhere different you might be on the same lot in the same studio film studio but it's got to feel different and so my 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 dop nicole whitaker and i you know talked a lot about this um and then she sent me this wonderful book um called homage to humanity by jimmy nelson it's this kind of huge great big tome oh wow stunning. This book. Um, <laughs> and he went around the world photographing indigenous people in their authentic uh, landscapes and dress and it was really interesting to look at that because it makes you think well what is it that makes the people of Bhutan look and feel so different to the people of I don't know um the Aztec people say in Mexico you can just tell you know that everything about it and so you look at the landscape and you look at the buildings and you look at that and you and you start to think well Okay, so maybe this becomes a way that we can start to differentiate these different landscapes. Partly because they had to feel differently, but partly because I wanted them to feel um, like they had a history, like, like they'd been there forever. And when our lovely Straw Hats crew land on these places, you feel like they're entering into uh, a kind of heritage that has pre-existed them being there. So, you know, I would sometimes go around the set and pick up various props and say, why is this here? What's the story behind this prop? Because I wanted everything to have a reason, everything to have a, a purpose, everything to have a story. And look, you know, I mean, that sounds a bit pedantic and slightly extreme, but but it was more, the point was, I just wanted people to think about where things came from, what the story is, because that way you can build something which feels authentic. I think that's one of the most remarkable things about the show. It's it's a fantastic show. It's fantastical, but it feels grounded and it feels real. The characters feel real. The worlds feel real. And, and uh, you know, it's kind of richer for the audience. I, I think, you know, a lot of my friends who've never heard of One Piece before love the Netflix show, you know, and it's, it's such a good gateway into that world. And I think you've you kind of, you know, broken it out of its... Uh, its niche or its existing fan base and have bring, brought it to a wider audience. Well, that's a lovely thing to hear, Sam. Thank you. I mean, I think the, the you know, that, that that's always been the kind of the hardest thing of all is, that, you know, how do you, you know, it's it's huge in Japan. Um, you know, it's 450 million subscribers or whatever. It's just massive, you know. Um, you know, when you take on a show like One Piece, I remember meeting um, the studio in Los Angeles when they wanted to talk about me directing it. And one of the questions that we discussed together was why? Why do this as, this as a live action? There's a really successful manga. There's a really successful anime. Why? I mean, I, I know, you know, the dollar signs are attractive if you get it right. But for me as a director, as a person who is is going to be directing actors in a show, it has to be more than, oh, well, because we think we can make a lot of money out of it. And And, and I feel... And I think we all felt, unless we feel we can add something to the pre-existing manga and the anime, then there's no reason to do it. But if you look at the story and you think, okay, what is One Piece? 
you know, it's really about the question that I said was, look, you know, in 22 years of Odesan having written this, they never find the treasure. You know, so to me, that's because the treasure's inside. And maybe the maybe it's all about the journey towards the treasure. Maybe it's all about Luffy, who'd been, you know, never really met his mum, been rejected by his dad, been bullied by his grandpa, wanting to find friendships that can become his found family, friends who who support him and believe in him and believe in their own dreams and they support each other in their dreams. Maybe it's about that. And that is what we can add to this because what we do is we dimensionalize it. We bring in three-dimensional, warm-blooded human beings that we we need to create, that we understand and that we, we feel are, are truthful so that the audience can relate to them. So as an audience, you then take a warm-blooded human being who's playing these crazy characters, but they all have little stories about suffering in their childhood or wants that they have and goals and dreams. And, and what we can do in live action then is create the story about these kids that the audience can then relate to and, and enter into it. And, oh, and by the way, they've got rubbery skills. Oh, and they can split themselves up into hundreds of pieces. But that doesn't really matter because I understand their emotional truth. Knowing that this has got this rich history and, and you know, 20 years of material to, to pour upon, that, that sounds like it must be quite exciting, uh, you know, as a filmmaker, but also maybe a little bit daunting uh, you know, <laughs> to see what gets picked out and what goes, you know, makes it actually onto our screens at home. Well, and, and also... Um, you know, we did a big global search for the cast, and um, one of the one of the things that I said to the studio and Netflix, you know, is that you know, on 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 my day one, we need to start casting because this show will stand or fall on the cast, and we want to do a global search uh, for the right people. You know, I wanted I wanted actors that were physical, that could carry choreography. Um, because I wanted, because of how I wanted to shoot the action in big, long, fluid takes that moved from one person to the other. Um, so I needed actors who who were interested in in learning choreography, learning how to fight, learning the dance of of, of, of action sequences. Um, but also, you know, so many actors came into the auditions and said, "You've no idea how much this show means to me." You know, One Piece has seen me through some really dark times. And so, so not only do you want to realize the kind of the effervescence of the series, but you also want to realize the thing that makes it so special in people's lives. And that meant for me casting actors who I believed had heart and that had a spirit to them, a charm and humor and warmth and all those different things, because it doesn't matter how good a director you are. It doesn't matter how great the scripts are. You can't manufacture that on the screen. You have to bring that through the cast that you're working with. And if you cast in that way, there is a chance that that alchemy will then come up onto the screen. You know, we, we spent a lot of time rehearsing together so that by the time we came onto set, we trusted each other. Inyaki, who plays Luffy, the lead in this whole show, the whole show rests on this the young man's shoulders, was 17 when he arrived at Cape Town. Um, that's really young to take on something as iconic as this character. And so, 
you know, we we spend a lot of time together, um, you know, helping him feel safe, helping him feel, you know, supported. And as I said to him, you know, it said to them all, look, you know, I'm I'm your parachute. I I will give you a soft landing. Whatever you do, how whatever you try, I will always make sure you you land softly. So you can you can dare, but you have to dare, otherwise the parachute won't open. <laughs> so so for our podcast, we are you know obsessed with runtimes, and uh, I guess what's fascinating about your career is you've made a lot of work, which is you know by its very nature under ninety minutes. But we also gave you a little bit of homework, uh, which was to pick a film to add to our own our under ninety minute long film festival. Yeah, I'd love to know about the process of uh, you know, what went into choosing your choice, and then also what you have chosen. Oh, it was such a wonderful um, challenge. I loved looking through all those films that are under ninety minutes, and you realise actually most of the films that are under ninety minutes are old films, and I think that's a shame really because I think the the the, the neat, precise ninety minute story is 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 a fantastic thing to be part of both as a filmmaker and as a viewer, you know, to tell a story succinctly, to give it, you know, a 90 minute arc is a skill. I was really wrestling between two films, both actually, I think made for television originally, but I settled on um, Small Axe, Lover's Rock. It blew my mind when I saw it. To contribute that to your wonderful film festival, it felt to me, you go to a film festival quite often to experience something new, to be to go into that room for the lights to dim and for the screen to open, take you into a world which you had maybe not expected to be taken into. And Lover's Rock absolutely did that for me. Lover's Rock tells the fictional story of a young love at a blues party in 1980. The film is an ode to a romantic reggae genre called Lover's Rock and to the black youth who found freedom and love in its sound in London house parties at a time when they were not welcome in white nightclubs. Directed by Steve McQueen, co-written by Steve McQueen and Corsia Newland, stars Michael Ward and Amara J. St. Alban and a whole wonderful cast and really, really beautifully photographed as well um, by uh, Shabia uh, Kirchner. And I think Shabia actually shot all of um, Small Axe, um, an incredible cinematography there. Listeners, this is um, readily available. It was originally broadcast on BBC, so if you're listening in the UK, you can pause this podcast right now, go to iPlayer, check it out. But there's a lovely Criterion Blu-ray. There is uh, It's available to rent on iTunes, Amazon, all those usual uh, places too. And um, it's 79 minutes long. You know, that is, a, that is a beautiful, beautiful runtime, especially considering you know, the journey it, it takes the audiences on. I was wondering, Mark, did you watch this when it was first broadcast on TV? Yeah, I think I did. I, I'm I'm always interested in anything Steve McQueen does. Um, he's always, he's such an interesting filmmaker and an inspiration for me in many ways. I watched it when it came out. I didn't watch episode, oh no, I did watch episode one, Mangrove, which I thought was a fantastic piece of storytelling. But when it came to Lover's Rock, turned the dial in a completely 180 degrees for me. And it wasn't issue-based. This was a, just a celebration of human beings on a night out, both in terms of their preparation for that night out. I mean, the you know, that opening scene of them in this house in Notting Hill, getting ready for that night's party is so 
reminiscent of some of the kind of parties that I used to go to when I was young. And you know, I, I used to live in a squat in Notting Hill for, for a time. When I first started in the in the um, film business, the only way I could kind of get into the film business was for me to work for this company, this film company. Um, and I did four different jobs for them. Each job was being paid at a whack for them and they would pay me 50 pounds a week. Um, so the only way that I could kind of survive was to squat. And I lived in a squat in Notting Hill. And so some of this is resonant of that time for me. And that kind of excitement of that Friday night thing of, you know, clearing all the furniture out of the rooms, rolling up the carpet and taking it out, you know, putting up the big speakers. And then when it first comes alive and you hear that music come out and it just kind of fills the room and you think, yeah, man, we're going to have a party. And 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 I think Steve and, and Shabia capture that so brilliantly in that opening sequence. And then, of course, what it, it, and it, that's really all the film is about in many ways. But of course, it's so much more than that, because through the process of people coming, preparing the food, the ladies in the kitchen preparing the food and the guys, you know, smoking and smoking reefers and, the, you know, the role of taking up this sofa with its plastic covering and putting it outside in the in that garden, you know, it's all so beautifully observed. And of course, the, the language that they use when they speak to each other in, in their traditional accents, dropping every now and then back into London and then back into their natural accents was just so lyrical. And it felt like a huge privilege as, a, as an audience member to, to be invited into that party. Absolutely. It's one of the best party scenes I think I've seen in cinema. Parties are often used, you know, in, in, in feature films, on TV, you know, because it's a good way for characters to be in a confined space to talk to each other. But I love that this story is all set in one night. I love films that are told over like a short period of time. And it uses like every inch of that house. It feels like a really authentic house. It doesn't feel like you know, that there's like a, you know, like a whole TV crew, uh, you know, behind the camera. It feels like everybody's like squashed in, um, the rooms feel lived in, and there's so many bodies on screen. There's so much like collective action. Um, it's a, it's a really immersive thing. And then also to tell a story, you know, and not just showcase this as a, you know, it's amazing, you know, cause it could just be a, a great, you know, sort of music video or a, a concert film almost, <laughs> but they, they weave in and out the story, you know, in, in the nooks and crannies of this party. And then it feels like you're there. And, and also what, what he does so cleverly and what the script does so cleverly is it, it, it it's telling you a story without telling you a story. You know, so so there's not a lot of dialogue. It introduces you to all these different characters and and character relationships. And then it comes back to the character relationships without really telling you what you're looking for. But because it's so well observed, you become interested in, you know, the big doorman who's kind of, you know, terrifying because he fills the screen somehow and you just know that you you don't want to get the wrong side of this guy, you know, or the guy with the big hat and he looks so dapper and then he's a little predatory, you know, and and then he's the person who takes, you know, the, the, the person whose party it is out into the back garden and, you know, wants his, you know, forces his way on her and but gets his comeuppance and then running onto the street with the white boys hanging out there who, who are again predatory, you don't need dialogue to tell you what's going on. And this is where Steve's work is so clever. He allows you as an audience to bring your own self into the story. And so you own the story in many ways through your own experience of life and what you're 
pouring into these different relationships. And and it's it's really rare that you see that these days, particularly on television, but even in movies, you know, um, so often writers, producers, directors lead always with dialogue or lead with plot. And Lovers Rock demanded you to shift the the way in which you watch the movie because it's deliberately not going to do any of those. It's not going to lead you with dialogue. It's not going to lead you with plot. It's going to just let you be in this space and the story will reveal itself. That's brave filmmaking. Um, and it's courageous of, you know, the commissioners to to let it be what it is. And so it speaks to me a, a little bit about you know, something that I, I I always come away from a film like that with, which is to say, sometimes we need to let directors, writers um, have their voice because that's what you get. And if everything becomes overly produced, you, you know, sometimes you you produce out the very thing that makes filmmaking so exciting and so special, which is a unique voice. I remember one time when I was in London and I was cutting a film I'd made and Steve was um, sitting on his own in one of the cafes. Anyway, so I went up to him and I said, look, you know, um, can I can I come and sit with you? You know, I'm a fellow filmmaker and I just love to kind of chat with you. He just made Hunger and I loved that film. It was such an incredible piece of work. Um, and we chatted and of course he said, yeah, yeah, come and sit down. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, lovely. So we had a cup of coffee together and I, and I said to him, you know, it, it, it's an incredible piece of work. Is it, is it the film that you wanted to make? Did they let you make your film? And he said, oh, yeah, every single frame in that picture is mine. So I said, well, congratulations, because, you know, lesser directors like me, you know, struggle like crazy to get, you know, your cut or your story onto the screen. And he said to me, well, they asked me to come and make this film. So... When they come into the cutting room and then say, oh, I don't want it to cut like that, I want it like this. He says, but you asked me to make this film. Do you want me to make this film or do you want to make your film? If you want me to make this film, you take my cut. And I said, wow, that's, you know. But of course, by then he'd won the turn of prize for, for art. So he kind of earned the right to, to say that. And he said, yeah, there was a lot of blood on the cutting room floor. What he managed in that film is to take a subject which is incredibly tough and make it beautiful. And that's, you know, that's a real gift. And I feel the same with Lover's Rock. You know, there, there is, is, it's a film which is really about a group of people who are congregating together to be able to feel safe and to let their hair down together in a world which is demanding that they can only do it that way around. They can't have their party out in the world. They have to congregate in, in their one house, separated from everybody else, because the world is kind of causing them to do that. But it's beautiful and it's lyrical and it's poetic and it's humane and you fall in love with all these different people and it's sexy as hell. Oh, 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 oh. I can see you know this one. Everybody doing it. And I mean everybody. Everybody was crazy and fighting. Those kids were 
what I love about it is it takes it's a very you know it's not a very special setting it's a domestic you know it's, a, it's an average looking house uh but it it, it feels like it feels grandiose it's, it's so prestigious to the characters and it's it's the biggest event of the week you know there and, and it, it feels so special you know to see that sort of very 80s looking furniture and that wallpaper but it's elevated by the way steve mcqueen uses that space and and what it means to the characters and that comes through like through dialogue you're right but 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 you're also right about it's not very dialogue heavy and it's actually for me it was like the dance scenes you know and 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 that sort of stuff like when everyone's dancing to kung fu fighting and the film it's a two minute or three minute sequence but it says so much you know like this is the place to be on this night uh and i i love that it's their church and and they get up and they get all dressed up you know and um as we all do you know for that for that Friday night bash, letting your hair down, you know, you work for the weekend and, and, and you get all dressed up. And then of course, what's lovely is at the end of the film, she sneaks into bed at the end of it and she barely gets the duvet cover over her face. And then there's a knock on the door saying, come on church time. She's already kind of dressed up in her church clothes. Um, so it's really beautiful, but the, but there's, but there's tremendous skill in this film, you know, both, both in terms of what Steve's done with it, but also what Shabia has done with how he shot it. You, you know those dance sequences. Those it's it's built around music, and the music's really beautifully used in it. You know, the the explosiveness of that first thing of everybody getting together, and then everybody's a bit cool around the edges. All the men are cool around the edges, and all the women are kind of you know boogieing in the in the front. And then suddenly, kung fu fighting comes on, and and the guys think, oh yeah. Yeah, I can I can dance to this. This is kind of macho. It's okay for a man to dance to kung fu fighting. So that starts the dance process, and then um, it, it develops, and you get into that wonderful long, long sequence when they're all dancing to the one track, um, "Silly Games." Silly Games, the Janet Kay song. Yes, um, and it goes on and on, and then it goes on and on some more. And then it goes on and on again. And then, and you think, okay, I've got it, I've got it. And then you think, oh, well, they're not gonna give up on this. So I now have to change how I watch this. So you're not, you're not, you stop watching it for what it's gonna deliver to the story. You start watching it just for the sake of being in that room, in that dance with that music. And then, of course, the mute. And then, what happens is that the, the the track came to an end. And then, and I was reading about this uh, about how they shot that is that the actors, the performers in the room, started singing the song, and the dance continued completely spontaneously. So they carried on shooting. So you get this kind of extraordinary joy of just dancing to great music. And then it develops even further into couples. And then it starts to get really sexy. And you see the couples kind of touching each other, getting closer to each other, rubbing up against each other. And it's really beautiful, that development. And then it goes into slow motion. So it notches it up even further, which is becomes very sexual, even though you're not seeing any sex. And then it goes into the violation of that with with the guy that takes, you know, the birthday girl out onto the onto the garden. And then the music starts, then we start to get confrontation. So where we were having big, close two shots of people kissing or rubbing up against each other, suddenly these big, close two shots become aggressive. 
And so, you know, thematically, you're telling the story of love and hate, all in the same kinds of frames, which is, I think, really interesting, you know. And then, of course, it becomes much more, as people get more drunk and smoke more weed or whatever it is, you know, then it becomes kind of real free-for-all uh, and quite aggressive and, and kind of dangerous. So there's a wonderful arc to the whole thing. It's it's incredibly immersive, you know, and like, you know, I'm saying that whilst I'm watching this on my TV at home, you know, like it's 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 got this really transportative power, which, you know, is, is really hard to do. And it's kind of rare, I think, for audiences to experience. But this really captures something, you know, and it's it's it's, it's just like embedded in every single shot, every single cut, every single choice that Steve McQueen has made. And we're all the richer for it. Yeah. And Shabia with his camera work, you know, you never feel like he's trying to find something, you, you know, and, and and having shot scenes like this, it's a really, really subtle difference in, in camera motivation. You can be in a scene like that and you can have um, a very simple, minutely different um, camera move that can make the, the, the camera move feel gratuitous or inauthentic. In other words, it's trying to fight. Oh, it's looked, you know, with its right eye, the left eye is looking down the camera, the right eye is looking around the room, seeing what's going on. And it tries to find something that's going on somewhere else. And the, and because it's the right eye seen that, it motivates the camera. Now, that's a slightly dishonest capture of that scene for me. But if you, and what he's done in his camera moves, he literally just moves and whatever he finds, he finds and trust that that's part of the story. So you don't feel like he's moving to find something. He's moving because he's in in the scene and he's part of that party. And because of the way it's been directed so that everybody that's in that scene is active, you will always capture something worthwhile. Yeah, it's a little bit more candid, isn't it? And and, and like lived in. I, I love that sort of stuff where, you know, it, it just it isn't, it's less even though it is heavily choreographed, I'm sure, you know, it's sort of, it feels naturalistic because everybody's just going about, they're in the scene, whether the camera's on them or not. And, you know, even if a little corner of them is on scene, you know, we still get to see their action, uh, which is so good. It's so well done. The other thing I loved about Lover's Rock is, so whereas Mangrove was a story about horrendous prejudice um, and, and a really important story to tell, um, this is a kind of story that takes you into a world that feels celebratory and it's really nice that we make films i think sometimes about people that traditionally are told as a as a kind of um ideas driven thing we've got to tell the story it has a purpose it has a point to it that sometimes you don't do that you're literally just capturing the energy of those people there's a film i'm working on at the moment about three homeless kids who meet on the streets of bristol um and each one carries quite a story in the, in the back of their lives. But having spent so much time working with these young people, these vulnerable people in organisations in Bristol and in Gloucester, you know, they are cheeky and they're warm and they're naughty and they're lyrical. And, and yet <clears throat> we normally tell stories about them, which is, you know, always either in the gutter or in a council, or sort of drugs, or violence, or whatever it is, you know, and it and it's interesting to me to find ways to tell those stories in in a way that doesn't present them with their problems, but presents them with their humanity, and that's what I feel like Lovers Rock is. 
There are elements that are around. It's not denying the situation in which they live, but it's not defining them by that. And I think that's, for me as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, that interests me. Um, the, the, the homeless story, I'm telling a film called Home, um, came out of me sitting next to this young lad who had R.I.P. tattooed on the back of his hand. Um, and it was so fresh, it looked like it was done that morning. And when I asked him about it, you know, we were sitting in this in this kind of charity for young, it's called 1625 for 16 to 25 year olds, who are vulnerable and lost and need some help. And anyway, I asked him about it and he said, um, well, he had it tattooed on his hand because his best mate had been stabbed and killed that weekend in Bristol. This was on the Tuesday, so it was really raw for him. But he rhymed the story and he wrapped the story and completely spontaneously. And then he got up and then he started to move it. And so as he was telling me this incredible story about his mate who'd been stabbed and killed, he was almost dancing the story to me. It, I came away thinking, why do we always tell the story about the knife crime? Why would we all always go straight to the knife crime, the stabbing, who did it, what were the consequences, why, the fallout, all that sort of stuff. But look at this guy in front of me. Look at the lyricism and the energy and the beauty and the, the natural way he was telling me the story in rap and rhyme. Why don't we ever tell that story? And that's kind of what Lovers Rock is doing um, in the Small Axe series. Absolutely. I, I, I love that. And that sounds like a really special uh, piece to be working on, but also a really, you know, special experience. Um, but yeah, I think Lovers Rock shows you that you can, you know, I guess it would be called non-traditional storytelling, but it's it's no less powerful. You know, if, if anything else, it's more special, I think, uh, for people to see. And, and I think this is why of the Small Act series, I think Lovers Rock is the one that a lot of people have sort of talked about and, you know, the critics sort of cited in their end of year lists and stuff. But it's a really nice way in to the whole experience of Small Acts. You, you know, to, if you're going to draw out from it and say, OK, you're, as you say, you know, lots of people talk about it. You know, it's the it's the most memorable of all the series in there. There's some phenomenal stories and important stories. You know, the takeaway for me is, you know, we storytelling and filmmaking comes in lots of different ways and lots of different forms. There is space for that and there's appetite for it, too. We just have to put it in front of people. This is a fictional film festival, but, uh, you know, if we were to show Lovers Rock at the cinema and we could get you along maybe, to, you know, to sort of help curate our cinema screening, uh, is there is there maybe a venue you'd like to uh, put forward uh, for us to show this film and, and any sort of extra embellishments you'd like to bring uh, to the theatre uh, for the audience? We'd have to have um, some alcohol, controversially, pump in some tobacco smell, something in there just to give it a sense of what the, probably not weed, because I think everybody will kind of come out um, worse for wear. But I, I love the notion that you can, you know, when you're watching a film, you can create a full all-round sensual experience. There's a theatre show I went to go and see uh, called the, the, the Bhagavad Gita, once in Paris, that Peter Brook um, did. And um, when you sat in, when you went, it's a nine, it was a nine-hour show. And... And there was a fire on, on in the middle of the stage, a proper wood fire. So that when you came into the theatre, it smelled of wood smoke, uh, which set the scene and your senses alive to the rest of it. You know? I love the idea that you could do that 
uh, in the cinema. I, I I think I would choose the Notting Hill Coronet Cinema. It was a place of refuge for me when I was squatting in Notting Hill. You know, it was the the squat I was living in had you know it was pretty grim. There was graffiti on all the walls inside the house. You know, it was chaotic with the comings and goings on that was going on in there. So quite often I would just go to the Notting Hill Coronet and just sit and you know, sit on these beautiful deep red chairs and just enjoy whatever was there. And then I would pack it. I would ram it with people. And and I'd have lots of lights on at the beginning. I can see your cat's tail there. That's so... <laughs> She's, uh, she wants to come to the screening. <laughs> <laughs> I would ram it with people. Everybody would have a drink in their hands. I'd have lights on so that when the lights go down, there's a real sense of occasion. You'd have a, a moment of silence in the dark. And then you'd hear this as the curtains open and then bam you'd be there oh that sounds fantastic really immersive and i mean this film lends itself i think to you know to bringing people together to watching it communally you know and, and maybe after the film finishes we can just get a dj and carry on the party in, in the lobby it or would something not stop i guarantee you sam if you had a full audience watching lovers rock at the notting hill coronet it would be it would not be the end by the time the film finishes it would be the beginning of the next stage. <laughs> yeah, maybe you know, make it a night long event, and yeah, you know, we'll finish uh, you know Sunday morning, and everyone can go to church. <laughs> like, just like the film does, you know, yeah. when they're riding on the bike at dawn, you know, uh, on the little kind of moped and sharing a spliff from one to the other, you know, that's how the film would end. You'd kind of come out, and it'd be dawn outside in Notting Hill, and uh, you'd think like, life's great. Life is great. If we share it with people and we have a bit of fun with everybody, you know, life is great. Oh, that, that, sound, that sounds incredible. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I want to make this one happen. We'll have to work on this behind the scenes. Thank you uh, so much uh, for talking to us, Mark, and for suggesting uh, Small Axe Lovers Rock. Uh, listeners, as mentioned, it's readily available, especially if listening in the UK uh, on BBC iPlayer. Do check it out. Also, one Piece readily available on Netflix and, and so many of Mark's works actually on Netflix and various streaming platforms uh, would highly, highly recommend checking that one out. Thank you, Mark. Great pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. So I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll set a date for the Notting Hill Coronet and I'll see you there. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. 